Welcome to episode 19 of the podcast of Lifeliner, the Judy Taylor story. I am the author, Shireen Gigi Boy. Chapter 19, J.J. the guinea pig. It had all started back in 1972. Five months after Jeech had put her back on intralipid, and four months after he'd added choline to her infusion, he'd called Judy back into TGH on June 4, 1972, to evaluate the effects of the choline. She had left the hospital on June 17th with a new amogen source, unbeknownst to her. The old source was casein. The new source was synthetic which would give her more methyl-donating groups. Unfortunately, the doctors didn't realize that casein, unlike the synthetic source, contaminates the amogen with electrolytes and trace elements, the kind Judy needs, the kind researchers and physicians didn't know much about in 1972. The new amogen beefed her up and made her skin elastic and dry. It's October 1973, and Judy starts losing weight. Each week, she sheds a pound. By Monday, December 3rd, she has lost five kilograms. Jeej is not happy. He admits her to I-South to investigate. The GI and TPN programs have expanded so much that they now occupy two wards, I-West and I-South, in the college wing of TGH. She is not happy with the familiar battery of blood, urine, and G-tube collection tests, and the unfamiliar exotic test two days later tends her up even more. She is taken to the basement for the first test and waits outside a room that looks like a Cold War fallout shelter, while the radiologist measures the radiation the room is emitting. When he is done, he sends her into the steel-lined space and clangs the door shut. The steel was salvaged from pre-World War II battleships, built before the first atomic bombs exploded, before he puffed radiation into the Earth's air and soaked new steel with it. It has little radiation of its own and it keeps radiation out, the kind that comes from cosmic rays that bombard us all the time and excite the potassium in our cells to morph into potassium-40. Knowing how much potassium-40 Judy has will tell Jeech how much lean body mass she has. There is no upper limit to the amount of mass, but there is a lower limit. A number below this limit indicates that she is wasting. The radiologist counts the radioactive waves emitting from Judy as she sits. Nothing to it, right? But then Jeej wants to flood her with radiation. In another room, she clambers onto a sliding bed. Underneath it sits a container of beryllium. Overhead is a detector coated in wax. The bed slides her over the beryllium as it pumps slow neutrons into her body, which shoot through her and stop dead at the wax barrier. Her cells, stimulated by the neutrons, emit gamma rays. Those rays penetrate the wax, and the detector counts the gamma rays. The results tell Jeej how much nitrogen her body contains and thus how much protein. Jeej reviews her tests and decides to reduce her IV thyroxine. Langer changes her G-tube and Judy gains 2 kilograms. It seems like they've solved the problem. Cliff picks her up on December 8th, a Saturday, to take her home. He no longer waits for her in town during her hospital stays. He goes back home to work after he's dropped her off and avoids the hospital as much as possible. Jeej! I'm walking on cotton wool, Judy announces on the next supply run. 
Your what? Cheech raises his eyebrows. Walking on cotton wool, and my toes feel frozen of fat. What are you going to do about it? How long has this been going on? He asks. And as he listens, he puts his hand up to his mouth while his other hand supports his elbow. His eyes watch her intently. He notices that she is unsteady. This is a huge problem, he thinks. He checks her nitrogen balance study carefully. She's in the negative. Not good. He increases her calories from 1,900 to 2,500. The months slip by with no news from Jeej. One Saturday night in 1974, Judy looks at her line for a long moment. Cliff, it's not tripping. His heart leaps. She's going to die. His fear has become real. Only he can get her down to Jeej fast enough to save her. Damn the Air Force! That plane from CFB Trenton will take too long to get to them. He jumps out of his chair to get the car, while Judy unhooks herself from the TPN. He dashes back into the house and hustles her to the car. He speeds down the deserted highways to TGH. He squeals into the ER. They rush in and ask for Jeej. He's not there, but Johnston is on duty, and with brute force he dislodges the clot from the end of her catheter. This line is only a month old. He and Langer had put it in when her old line had developed a kink, got jammed in scar tissue, snapped off when they tried to remove it, and left a piece stuck to her jugular. They had threaded a new silastic catheter in through her cephalic vein and felt that the rogue piece would not cause any infections, just as a pacemaker lead that breaks off does no harm. Her new line clear again, he tells her to increase her heparin for a week and then to reduce it back down to her regular levels while increasing the amount of water she uses to irrigate it. Cliff worries even more about her during the next feeding. But Judy smiles, relieved at being given one more day. Finally, Jeej brings Judy back into hospital on April 2nd to find out why her weight shows no increase and why her G-tube discharge smells awful. He asks the neurologist to do an EMG on her. The neurologist diagnoses peripheral neuropathy from diabetes. Jeej cannot believe it and orders an IV glucose tolerance test during the day and another at night while she is infusing. Sure enough, she is most definitely diabetic. Yet, she has no family history of diabetes and no earlier indication of this condition. Why has she become diabetic? He spots another problem. She is receiving too much vitamin D. He had based her daily intake on what humans normally need, 400 units per day minimum. But it seems that the 500 units in her TPN was a tad high. While instructing the pharmacy to add insulin for Judy's diabetes, he also asked them to have her alternate her MVI with soluzyme which contains no vitamin D, in order to cut her average daily intake down to 250 units. With relief, Judy believes that Jeej finally knows what her problem is. She'll be fine. And she's thankful to finally be going home on April 17th. But she had not liked being gastroscoped. She says to Cliff on the drive home, I told Jeej I'm never doing that again. Judy's fame is reaching beyond the hospital walls and she's quite surprised to receive a phone call from Bill Trent of Weekend Magazine, which appears Saturdays in Canada's national newspaper, The Globe and Mail. He wants to spend a few hours with her. On the big day, she scoots the children off, only allowing them back into the house when Bill asks to speak with them. The girls know to keep up the fiction of normalcy, and Judy plans to show him that she can do anything. She even climbs onto her girl's pony, but she does so stiffly, unable to feel the stirrups with her fuzzy feet. She laughs it off by saying that this is what diabetes does to you and slides off. 
her family holding their breath in fear of her falling. Trent's lengthy article soon appears, and ABR acquires over a 100 copies of the June 22, 1974 edition to dole out to us, the nurses, doctors, fellow lab researchers, lab techs, and anyone else he can think of. Toronto and Bob Cajun buzz with this new public fame for what Jeej and Judy are doing. Jeej based only briefly in the limelight. His August vacation over, he has work to do. The insulin did not solve her neuropathy, and this worries him. This is not normal diabetes. Something else is going on. He looks for an answer in the piles of research journals that perch precariously wherever he has room for them both at his office and at his home. And there, in one of the journals, he finds a possible explanation in an article written by W. Mertz, an animal biologist. His heart quickens. He has his secretary track down the man's phone number. I read your paper on how you found chromium promotes insulin action, he says to Mertz. He goes on to explain Judy's symptoms and her lack of response to her insulin infusion. Mertz's description of the marks of chromium deficiency seemed to fit Judy. Do you know of any human cases? No, none. I'm not sure what to say about your interesting problem. I've never heard of it, but I'm not a physician. Cheech thanks him and hangs up. The more he thinks about it, the more compelling he finds Mertz's research. He has his secretary call Judy to schedule another experiment. Mertz's description of the marks of chromium deficiency seems to fit Judy. He's using me as a guinea pig again, Judy tells Cliff that night. Cheech seems to be doing a lot of tests on you. Well, it is for the sake of science. They're learning. I'll let them do it. The click of her knitting needles pauses. I'm a guinea pig, she guffaws. Maybe I'll get him a guinea pig for Christmas instead of the zipper I was thinking of for all those surgeries he's done on me. Later that month, as Cliff drives out of the college wing parking lot toward the service entrance, Judy walks into the hospital carrying her Christmas present for Jeej, as well as her usual cookie tins, and makes her way to his office. She sits down in his waiting room, the cloth-draped cage on her lap, and talks non-stop with Valerie, Jeej's secretary, until Jeej emerges from his office. Judy stands up and offers him her gift. I'm tired of being a guinea pig, Jeej. Here, there's one for you to use. Cheech takes it astonished. He lifts a corner of the cloth and sees a tan and white guinea pig, eyes closed, lying on newspapers. Well, thank you, he says, nonplussed. His name is JJ, she says, waiting to see how long it will take him to pick up on the name. Not long, he chuckles. He likes that acronym for Judy and Cheech. He puts the cage down as she hands him his tin of cookies. Before munching on one, he tells her why he wants to admit her in January. He has a plan for her fuzzy feet. She understands and leaves to visit the ward. Hours later, he picks up the cage and carries it home. Olive, he shouts as he opens the front door of his still new smelling recently renovated house. Froze and I are already waiting for him, for I had seen him coming up the walk through the front windows with this mysterious thing in his hand. What is it, Kush? I'm in the middle of dinner, she shouts back from the kitchen. You've got to come and see this. She doesn't respond. So we shout for her to come, eager to see what he has brought. Finally, she rushes into the hall, wiping her hands. You won't believe what I got today. He removes the cloth from over the cage, revealing the guinea pig snuffling around inside. What's his name, I asked. Can I have it, Froze asks. Sure. He hands Froze the cage while Mum admonishes my brother about having to look after it. 
Mouthing the eager promises of a seven-year-old, he disappears upstairs. Unfortunately, J.J. has a short life. In the spring, my mother picks dandelion leaves for J.J. from her front yard. Not knowing, our neighbor had vigorously sprayed all of hers with pesticide, which had wafted over to our lawn. After feasting on his treat, J.J. looks a bit green and then goes comatose. He dies. You have been listening to Lifeliner, the Judy Taylor story, a biography on a Canadian medical pioneer who made artificial feeding possible, podcast by the author Shireen Gigiboy, one chapter at a time. Music used for this podcast is I Like It Like That by Steph Sachs and The King Is Back by Echoed, licensed under Creative Commons. They can be found at dig.ccmixter.org under Instrumental Music for Film and Video. I hope you enjoyed this chapter. For more information or to leave a comment, please check out the website at ggboy.ca or the Twitter feed at Shireen J. So until next time, thank you for listening to Lifeliner. I'm Shireen Gigiboy. Boy.